Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Air Power and International Security. Now, on this show, we've talked a lot about strategy, whether that's national strategy, military strategy, or how air, space, and cyber power can contribute to strategy. But we've not really addressed the issue of strategy itself, which is as complex as it is important. So today we're ending series two with an episode that takes a much closer look at the concept and meaning behind the word strategy. We hear this word so often, right? In conflict, in politics, sport, business, education, you name it. But so often that word, it seems to me at least, has become kind of synonymous with the word plan. So I've brought Dr. Paul O'Neill on the show to talk to us all about strategy. Given the vastness of this subject, we'll be focusing on national strategy in particular. Paul actually has his own podcast entirely focused on strategy, which in itself tells you a little about the extent of this subject. It's called Talking Strategy, and you should definitely go and check that one out. I've certainly learned a lot from his show. Today, though, I'll be asking Paul what strategy is, what types of strategy exist, what the purpose of strategy is, and how all this relates to the conduct of war and the running of military organisations. Paul is a renowned scholar and practitioner with extensive experience in the world of strategy making. He retired from the RAF as an Air Commodore and was part of the team that brought us the SDSR in 2015. He also served as the Senior Advisor on Strategy and Policy to the Afghan Ministry of Interior. So he knows a thing or two about developing and implementing strategy. Nowadays, Paul is the Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute, so I'm delighted he agreed to come on the show. With no further ado then, here is Dr. Paul O'Neill telling us all about strategy. Hi Paul, thanks for joining me today to talk about strategy and what strategy looks like in the 21st century. Thank you, Harry. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about types of strategy and what makes for a successful strategy. But before we get into that, can you tell us what the word or the concept strategy actually means? Because on the face of it, it might seem like a simple term to describe. But in reality, I think it can be quite difficult to set a clear definition. So what is strategy and what makes something strategic? That's a really great question, Harry, because as you say, it seems it seems obvious, but it isn't. Uh, I think strategy and strategic are really quite confused terms. So strategy, I think, is often used to describe anything that takes a rounded view of a problem or takes a long-term view. So we end up with all sorts of bizarre strategies and a proliferation of documents that purport to be strategies, uh, but very often aren't. Uh, The military talk about strategy as this idea of ends, ways and means, but Even that, I think, has some challenges because that strikes me as being more of a strategic plan than a genuine strategy. And there are, I think, some interesting questions about if you're in a a state of competition, what an actual end state might genuinely look like. But in the military context, where you have a a military objective to achieve, then ends, ways and means is is a fair description, but it doesn't cover everything in my mind. Uh, Colin Gray talks about strategy, and he says strategy is a bridge between purpose and action. So I I suppose in my mind, strategy is really either a verb, it's a process thing, it's a living thing, or it's a noun where it's a document. And there's a great book by Stephen Bungay where he definitely 
errs towards this idea of seeing strategy as a living thing, not something that you can codify completely in a document and never then revisit in light of circumstances. Strategic is, I think, more of an adjective. It often describes something. So it can describe seniority. So you have a strategic leader or you have a strategic headquarters. Uh, it can describe distance. You know, the idea of a strategic bomber was one that would go a long way. Uh, or you can talk about strategic distance, where you're thinking about how far you have to project armed forces, for example. But it also can cover the kind of impact somebody can have, you know, the, the Krulak idea of the strategic corporal. So somebody low down in the organization, but has a, a disproportionate effect on the overall campaign objectives. And strategic also sometimes covers a temporal element, which is a strategic approach is not a short term approach. So when you talk to somebody about what is strategy or what is strategic, I think very often you find individuals coming at it from multiple different perspectives. And that makes a conversation really challenging. For me, I, I tend to go for the grave view that strategy is about the link between purpose and action in a kind of iterative process where there are feedback loops. It's a dialogue between what you want to achieve, what you think you can achieve, and also what you're actually achieving. Um, if I can give you an example, in, in the run-up to the, the 2015 Strategic Defence and Security Review, when I was working in defence strategy, I was often asked, is this policy informed or is this resource constrained? Um, and I suppose what the people were doing was getting at the two previous defence reviews. So the 1998 Strategic Defence Review under the Labour Party, which I thought was an excellent policy document in terms of describing ambition. Or was it more the 2010 Strategic Defence and Security Review, which was about making the books balance? So it was very resource constrained. And my answer to them was actually it's a handshake between the two. Good strategy has to be something that negotiates both your ambition, your purpose and what you can afford to deliver. Um, because what you ended up with in 1998 was this brilliant policy, ambitious review that led to the £38 billion defence black hole that the 2010 SDSR had to cope with. So you can't be either ambition or resource independent. You've got to be that handshake between the two of them. And the third point I mentioned about this being a loop is that your enemy or your competitor gets a vote. So you need to continually adapt the strategy, both the ambition and the resource in light of what you're genuinely achieving. And there's a lovely quote allegedly from Churchill, but I don't think anyone's actually found any evidence he said it, but it, it's a brilliant quote, so why not use it? where he says, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. So it's about choices and it's about action. But you were absolutely right in your introduction to this when you said it's hard. I mean, we often criticize strategy documents much more than we praise them. And I think in part, it's because we look back on them. So we assess strategies looking backwards, but you write strategies looking forwards. And strategies that are long-term are impacted on events, you know, that famous Macmillan quote, events, dear boy, events. But there is also a challenge in the long term, which is in democracies, at least, long-term strategies are often written in environments where the political focus is short-term. Very long-winded answer to your question, but I hope it helps. Absolutely, it does. It's really useful to know that the word strategy can be applied in all sorts of ways for different purposes. Part of the difficulty that I find is that strategy can often be used almost as a synonym for importance, and that can make it difficult to understand. 
Because if we take Clausewitz's definition of strategy, for example, the use of the battle for the purposes of the war, that's quite a neat, narrow definition. And for somebody like me, that's quite easy to comprehend. But now, as you've just explained, the word strategy has all sorts of uses and meanings. But I think the point about strategy being a process is really useful here. We can then think of strategy as almost a continuous process, a continuous consideration or evaluation of ends, ways and means, which is another quite neat way of uh, conceptualising or describing strategy. But on top of that, another layer of complication to our understanding of strategy is that there can be different kinds of strategy, right? So could you give us a brief outline of the different forms that strategy can take? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm going to borrow some ideas from Mintzberg, who wrote quite a good book. It's quite old now, but it's called Strategy Safari, and he describes a, a number of different types of strategy. Um, there are other other types that you can reference, but I find his relatively easy to remember. Uh, so the first one is this idea of strategy as a vision. So it describes a destination, it's forward looking. And if you like, you could say it's what the organization, whatever organization it is, is intending to achieve. Um, I would argue that the integrated review in 2021 and the, the integrated review that came out in March of 2023 adopts this kind of vision approach to strategy. So there's this strategic framework, what we think Britain's place in the world should be. But it's a bit light on how it's going to achieve it. And that's one of the big problems of this vision kind of strategy. It becomes a kind of vague encouragement to action. So topical at the moment, perhaps, but you know, the strategy for the Ashes is to score more runs than the Australians or to take 20 wickets in each test. Well, it's a very clear idea of what you're trying to achieve, but how you do it is not particularly apparent from, from that kind of vision. Um, it can also, I think, lose sight of reality. And there are people who would argue, certainly the integrated review in 2021 definitely lost some sense of what Britain's role really was in the world. Um, I know there have been academics who've criticised it as being quite boosterish in that that phrase about this idea of Britain being some superhero. And indeed, Boris Johnson in in the Mansion House speech before the uh, the Integrated Review came out said that Britain was like Clark Kent and it was stepping into the telephone box and the world was waiting for it to emerge as Superman, uh, which. Some people would challenge whether that was a genuinely fair reflection of how Britain was seen in 2021, of course. Um, the other problem with vision is it depends on your view of the organisation. And often that's not the same top down as, as it is bottom up. And there's that great story about you know, the people at the top of the tree looking down, see happy, smiley faces. And the people at the bottom looking up, see, see something slightly different. So a vision strategy is great provided you've tried to synthesize the view and you know Sun Tzu or Swinza comes up with know yourself and know your adversary and you'll succeed in in all battles and it's understanding yourself is a really important aspect of a vision strategy and the other problem I think with vision strategy is it, it requires implementation often by others so the 2021 integrated view again identifies a need in the document for over 20 additional strategies in order to implement it. But the writers of those strategies weren't necessarily engaged in all of the discussion that happened for the integrated review itself. And so they're not quite in the same mind as the main author. 
And so you end up with strategic drift or strategy drift, where the vision is trying to achieve something for everybody, which often happens in complex bureaucracies, such as governments or defense departments. And you try to write a vision so everybody can see themselves in it, but it doesn't give you that sense of priority. And it's it's your point, absolutely, Harry, when you said it's about what's important. And in bureaucracies, everybody wants to feel important. And a strategy, a vision strategy that tries to make space for everybody, of course, loses that that sense of genuinely what's important. So, so that's one of the kind of strategies that Mintzberg talks about, this idea of an intended or destination strategy that he calls a vision strategy. You've then got a strategy that's more reactive to the real world, a, a positional strategy, which is where you try to position yourself often against another party, a competitor, for example, or in the military, an adversary. Um, and I thought the Australian Defence Strategic Review that came out in April 2023 is a really good example of a position strategy. It makes a very clear choice about Australia's focus being on China in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, so they even use the term that you know, we're not going to be a balanced force, we're going to be a focused force. So they're making choices about what's important. Um, it's also one that is often defer- referred to as a kind of emergent strategy. So it allows for you to adapt in light of how the person you're focusing on also changes. So it brings in that Clausewitz idea of you know war being a, a, a wrestling competition where both parties are actors. It's not you with a strategy against a somewhat non-responsive adversary. I think it was a good example of position strategy with Steve Jobs when I think it's the second time he took over Apple. And at that time, Apple was was failing as a business. And he was asked, you know, what's your strategy? And he said, I'm waiting for the next big thing, which sounds really passive, but it absolutely wasn't. It was about getting the organization ready to identify the next big thing ahead of the competition and aligning behind it quickly to exploit the opportunity, which turned out to be the the iPod. Uh, But what he was doing in this ostensibly passive strategy of saying, I'm waiting, was actually reducing the number of products Apple was making. So streamlining that, reducing costs, making sure he had a good corporate intelligence system to identify the emerging technology that he could then gear Apple behind ahead of his competitors who he was hoping would be more slow moving and then exploit away from it. So that I think that's a good example of a positional strategy. Uh, the third one you could talk about, I suppose, is the idea of a pattern strategy. And this often happens when a business doesn't have a, a written strategy, but it's looking at what the organization actually does, its behavior, and then trying to define what it's intending to achieve from that. Uh, And often when I was in defense strategy, I I thought part of my role was actually trying to create a compelling narrative for why we ended up where we did. And therefore, if that's the case, where are we going in the future? So kind of ex post facto justification for where you've ended up. Um, I perhaps unfairly described some aspects of the Strategic Defense and Security Review in 2010 as being a bit like Project 1492. 
because when Columbus set off, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. And when he got back, he didn't know where he'd been. Uh, and that's the danger of, of pattern strategy, which is you end up trying to give some kind of guiding intent and master plan and genius to something that's just happened because it's been buffeted by, by the winds of, of uh, events around you. And I suppose then the fourth one is what defence often calls a strategy, but would be regarded probably better as a strategic plan, which is about this plan for the future that tries to align the ends, ways and means that I mentioned up front. But that's a little contested these days because some organisations say, well, if you're getting into the individual means, that genuinely isn't a strategy because the strategy is about where you're going and where you're going to prioritise your efforts. So the ends and the ways and you you kind of knife and fork your way through the strategy delivery by adapting the means on a regular basis to suit how you're seeing your ends being affected and your ways being affected. That's all really interesting because I would have perhaps described the integrator review as a poor strategy or previously thought that Steve Jobs was almost completely devoid of a strategy because they were both ignoring to a degree the ends, ways and means. So it's fascinating to hear that actually they are legitimate types of strategy and they can be effective strategies, at least uh, in this case for Apple. Uh, I'm not convinced the integrator review was that good, but that's probably for another day. Now, given the different types of strategy that can be used, is it possible to say what makes for a successful strategy? Are there any elements that can be applied across the different types of strategy that make for a good strategy? I think there are. Um, I think, firstly, strategy is not just about the future. It's got to be about the past and the present as well, because it's got to understand where the organization is, how it got there in order to make sense of the future. So a strategy that's purely vision looking forward is not a good strategy. It's got to be something that continues this flow of where are we now? How did we get here? And then how do we move forward from that point? Um, I think it's got to concern the organization in its environment, including the risks and opportunities it faces. But it's got to be honest enough to recognize the organization that genuinely exists, not the organization you would like to have. You know, that old joke about, well, if I were you and you want to get to here, I wouldn't start from where you are. That's not a great place for strategy. You've got to start from where you genuinely are. And that's not a clean slate. Now, you could say you know, defence or indeed any organisation is a brownfield site. And acknowledging that point is, is critical. It concerns the welfare of the organisation. By that, I mean it, it's got to consider elements that have a big impact. So your point about importance, it's got to look at the big choices things that you're going to do and things you're going to choose not to do, so things you choose to omit. It's about content and process. It's about art and science. So the analysis is important, but I think strategy is more than just the process. And so it benefits from having diversity of views and thoughts. And it is about taking that to help you make choices. And what Paul Cornish, uh, who writes brilliantly on strategy, talks about the integrated review refresh as being everything, everywhere, all at once, because the priorities are so enormous and so far exceed the capacity of the, the state to deliver it. It becomes almost 
almost meaningless. So this sense, again, about balancing your ambition and action that Gray talks about is, is really important. Uh, RCDS gives quite a nice summary of this, the Royal College of Defence Studies, in its document, Making Strategy Better. And it says, strategy's got to be rational, i.e. it's got to achieve a clearly stated policy goal. It's got to be owned at the right level. It's got to be simple enough to be communicated. It's got to be dynamic in that it builds in the feedback loops that you mentioned earlier. It's got to be based on reality, so grounded. And it's got to be competitive, i.e. it's going to deliver what you want it to deliver. So far, we've talked about strategy in a rather general sort of way. And you've talked us through the differences between a vision strategy, a positional strategy, a pattern strategy and uh, a strategic plan. So I'd like to ask, how do militaries do strategy? What sort of strategy or strategies do they use? So starting off, I suppose, is that any strategy within the military is is always situated within a broader a broader strategy which some people call the grand strategy or the national strategy because defense is merely one lever of national power and if you're in a competition whether that's a peacetime competition or whether that's a competition in war then it is just one of the levers of national power and it's there to achieve a broader political objective you know that that famous point from Clausewitz that war is a continuation of politics by other means although there's some suggestion that von Bülow and others have said it before him but Clausewitz gets the credit so let's stick with that um so military strategy always sits under civilian control uh because it's there to achieve a political objective but when we think about the military itself i think there are probably two types of strategy that militaries have to operate and often they operate them in parallel. Uh, one of them is a strategy for the war, which is the war you're fighting, which doesn't happen very often. But that's about a particular purpose. Your adversary is very clear and you can be more definite in terms of what it is you're trying to achieve which allows it to be easier to balance ends, ways and means in this kind of strategic military plan. Um, but then you might have strategies that are about preparing for a war where you don't know what that war is. And that's where defence spends most of its time. It's trying to build a force that gives it the options to fight the war when it manifests itself. And the choices you make in that almost kind of business strategy, I suppose, for want of a better term, is what conditions the force that you have to go into the war when it manifests itself. Uh, I suppose a good example might be Keenan's long telegram that he uses to describe the containment strategy or what becomes the containment strategy of the Cold War. Or you might also look at that in the context of NATO and uh, and Supreme Allied Commander Europe's defence and disarm and uh, deterrence in the Euro-Atlantic area, the DDA concept which is moving NATO away from a deterrence by punishment model to a deterrence by denial, which is driving the move of forces towards NATO's borders to try and keep Russia from invading, because the countries on the borders of Russia have seen what it's like in Ukraine if Russia invades you, and a deterrence by punishment, i.e. then massing your forces to throw Russia out, isn't good for your population. So 
those I think are really two of the kind of two of the kind of strategies that the, the military operates. One is focused on a specific adversary in a specific conflict where you have the ability to align ends, ways and means, because it's a, a distillation, a manifestation of a challenge. And then you have the thing that defense spends most of its time doing, which is managing its business to be the kind of organization that can deal with the threats, whatever threat that might look like. And that's the one that really describes your procurement choices, your organizational structure, how you're going to play with allies and partners. And that's quite difficult. That's a really good point, because when people talk about military strategy, they tend to focus on war planning, I think. But it's important to note that the majority of military strategy relates to peacetime and preparing for an anticipated future conflict, which is difficult, right? Because you can never know when this may or may not occur or who it will be against. And so the capabilities and the strategies that you will have to contend with remain completely unknown and hard to predict. So given this huge challenge, how do militaries create and use strategy? A glib answer might be they do it too often. Uh, and the, the, the proliferation of strategies within the, the Ministry of Defence and within the armed forces, if we're thinking about it in that kind of peacetime terms, if we're focusing it now on the, the wartime element, then there's a planning process called the estimate process, uh, which is described in, in joint, uh, joint doctrine uh, available from the Development Concepts and Doctrine Centre. Uh, and essentially, it's a it's almost a project planning tool, but optimised for a military environment, uh, because it starts off with what's my role in the plan, uh, which, of course, suggests that there's a plan above it, which absolutely will be true, because any country going to war will have a, a national objective, which then recognises that part of achieving that national objective may be a task placed on the military. So, so you can't write military strategy in isolation. It's always got to be in that broader political construct, back to, to Clausewitz again. Uh, and that starts off with this idea of what's my role in the plan? What is it I'm being asked to achieve? What are the kind of constraints that are being placed on me? Uh, the good example of which is the context of Vietnam and the strategic bombing in Vietnam, that you can't actually bomb targets that are in certain parts, even though they're clearly contributing to the war effort. But politically, it was unacceptable for the US Air Force to bomb in neighboring countries, even though there was evidence that there were adversaries located there. So you've got to understand the constraints. One of the ways the defence thinks about this is about centres of gravity. So what are the important centres of gravity that my adversary might have, that if I were to defeat that, it would unlock the war for me? So rather than throwing force on force in a very attritional war, which we saw in the First World War and we are seeing in, in Ukraine at the moment, um, it's about thinking... Are there ways in which I can avoid that mass loss of human life by by targeting a specific thing that if I unlock it, it makes everything else fall apart? And sometimes that might be logistics. And we see the Ukrainians trying to attack the, the Russian logistics lines, because if you can interdict the flow of weapons to the front line, then it means that the soldiers on the front line can't fight. So rather than killing the soldiers, you're going deeper into the battle in order to, to do that. And, and that's called the central gravity analysis. Uh, so it's, you know, what's the enemy's strength? What does its strength depend on? What are the vulnerabilities in that? And therefore, how can I attack those? Uh, and that's how the military often thinks about this. 
but it also has to think about its own because as we know war is a is a duel it's that wrestling match that Clausewitz discusses and so the enemy will be trying to do that to you so you also then have to think about where are my vulnerabilities and how do I avoid being attacked by an enemy who's going to take a similar kind of mindset to how I'm going to defeat you. So when it comes to war fighting, then, is there a difference between strategy and planning? Again, great question. I think it's back to the confusion over the terms. Um, In my mind, there is a difference and it's a hierarchical relationship. Strategy describes what is to be achieved. So theoretically, strategy can adapt what it is you're trying to achieve. I think the plan's role is to take what is to be achieved and then work out how you're going to deliver it. So planning the analysis element is part of strategy, but it's not the whole. And it needs to leave space for what T.E. Lawrence describes as this Kingfisher moment, this flash of genius. Um, Whereas in many people's eyes, planning is quite a can be quite a mechanical process. And I think strategy needs to be more than that. Strategy needs to be thinking about what is it I'm trying to achieve and find ways of doing it that aren't just a linear progression from one point to the next. Now, I suppose that the example of that might be new. This idea that von Schlieffen had in the First World War of war can be run to a timetable. It was a massive planning exercise. But war isn't like that. The fog of war, that you know, the friction that Clausewitz describes, means planning isn't enough in wartime. There needs to be that broader element. And of course, mission command also depends on on a sense of understanding what you're trying to achieve, not rigid adherence to a plan, because as they say, the enemy always has a vote. And if you're following a railway timetable, then you're very likely to be derailed. That's a great analogy. The example of von Schlieffen's plan when compared with Malt the Elder's strategy in 1870 is a really good example of the difference between strategy and planning. In his invasion of France, Malt the Elder used what we'd call today mission command, whereas von Schlieffen, in his attempt to replicate Prussia's swift advance in 1914, planned every minute detail, right? So you might argue that he was more of a bureaucrat rather than a strategic commander. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing that often confuses me, and we haven't really addressed this yet, is the relationship between different levels of strategy, or what we might call strategy in the military context. Because we have levels of war, right? We have the strategic, operational and tactical levels of war. So that can easily sound like strategy only exists at that highest level. But surely operational commanders also have some sort of strategy for how they might employ their own forces or how they might pursue their own operational goals. So is there a strategy at the operational level of war then? Uh there is. I mean, there are often strategies at the tactical level as well. So, uh, so a platoon commander will have a, a a document that will often be this is the strategy for my forward operating base or something like that. Whether it's genuinely a strategy or not is, of course, another matter because higher up the chain, people have um, have set the plan, and you then need to go through that estimate question of what's my role in my commander's plan. And what I didn't say, and I should have done, is actually what you do when you're doing the estimate is you try to think two up. So what is it my boss's boss wants me to do? What is it my boss has told me to do? Because in the fog of war, 
if you're prevented from doing what your boss has told you to do, at least if you know the higher level of intent and the Moltke's uh, idea of mission commands, then you can still prosecute the higher commander's intent through that. But sometimes we use the term strategy to describe the process of thinking about it and the document that eventually flows from it. But I think strategy is, is about how to win a war. It's about all levers of national power, and it sets the frame for military action, which might be realized at the operational level. And then the operational level has a kind of military strategy within that operational theater to deliver the higher level national strategic objective. So you're right to say an operational commander will have a strategy, but it's a subordinate strategy to the higher level national strategy, grand strategy. Because strategy is how to win a war, and it's not purely a military activity. The military will have a strategy to prosecute its part. That acronym DIME, the levers of national power, diplomatic, information, military, and economic. And I suppose a purist view would be strategy is DIME. The military strategy is the M part, but it's how you're going to deliver the military part that contributes to the broader strategy and the operational commander will focus on the military. That's not 100% true, of course, because if you think about somebody like David Petraeus in Iraq or Afghanistan or other commanders in Afghanistan, because it was a counterinsurgency, it had to work with other actors. And so you would factor in the diplomatic elements, but defence doesn't control those. It merely aligns with them, I think. And of course, that's where the dialogue happens, where strategy is this handshake. I I mentioned about ambition and resource, but it's handshake between actors so that you're aligning your your outputs. So strategy is how to win a war. Uh, An operational strategy, if I can use that term, is about how does the military element contribute to the overall victory? And tactics is about how you're going to win the battle. Using DIME as a way of understanding strategy seems like a really handy way of conceptualising national or grand strategy and the military elements or sub-strategies within that. So now that we've moved on to thinking about military strategy and operational strategies, what does that mean for the air component in this scenario? Is there such a thing as an air power strategy or strategy for the use of air power? I'm thinking here of the likes of Douay or Warden, who came up with ideas or approaches in how to use strategic bombing, essentially. Were their ideas or approaches akin to an air power strategy? I think approach is a good term to describe the kind of thing we're talking about with Warden and Douay and uh, Boyd and others. It's It's a way of thinking about how you apply an instrument to a problem. Um, So... Yes, we talk about air power strategy, we talk about maritime strategy, and we talk about land strategy. And those are really, I think, more, as you've said, approaches and ways of thinking about the application of that particular tool to a a problem. Uh, If we think about air strategy or air power strategy in terms of its application in practical terms, air power, again, is always part of a bigger strategy. Often it's one of the ways of achieving national strategy. So even within the military instruments, it's merely one of the ways, but it can be, I think, the way. And whilst a lot of discussion in the air domain focuses on the kinetic campaigns, for me, probably the most strategic use of air power was the Berlin airlift. 
and I know my language is getting a bit loose here on what do I mean by strategic in that context, but if you think the Berlin airlift prevented the fall of West Berlin to the Russian forces, and I can't think of a much more strategic impact that set the conditions for Europe for the next 40, 50 years. So air power in that sense was the way of delivering the campaign effect. And it was a logistics effort, not a, not a fight. But air power is never the ends. So I suppose if you take the idea of strategy as defined as being ends, ways and means, then you can't have an air power strategy. You can have a strategy for applying air power, if, if that makes sense. Um, and, and I think you're right to pick on John Warden, the architect of the, the Gulf War 1991. And he, he argued, of course, that you can have a separate, just as you can have a separate land campaign, you can have a separate air campaign where air is decisive. And this was quite challenging to the prevailing doctrine of the time, which was the air-land battle concept, where it was air and land together, and often seen as air in the kind of supporting role to land. But Warden had a different view, and he convinced uh, General Schwarzkopf to go for a strategic air campaign that was going to focus on the leadership of Iraq, its command and control systems and critical infrastructure based around his five ring model. You know, the one where he talks about leadership at the center and then you get the kind of essentials, system essentials to that infrastructure population. And then the outer level is fielded forces. And he argues you should target the leadership because they're the controlling mind where, again, you're, you're right to highlight the difference with Douay because Douay, see, and others indeed, saw strategic bombing as targeting the population as the core issue, as a way of demoralizing it. And particularly for Douay, we're coming from Italy, where there were always concerns about revolution. The idea that a, a population that was in revolt would force the leadership to give up. And Warden changed that and talked about leadership. But ultimately, air power strategy is part of a broader strategy. It's got to be subordinate to the national strategy. It's got to be integrated with other parts of the force, with allies and partners and across governments. And I suppose we're now getting into this idea of integrated strategy that the integrated operating concept that the UK published a few years ago describes, which is the military has to be integrated across government and with allies and partners and the Air Force has to be integrated with the Navy and the Army and space and cyber domains. So at one level, there's a strategy for the use of air power. But at another, another level, there isn't an air power strategy. There's a plan to use air power to deliver that broader strategy. That's another really useful clarification about how air power fits within a wider strategic framework. And again, I think the potential complexity here in terms of how strategy can be defined and used is, is quite evident. But you've brilliantly given us some clear boundaries and methods of conceptualising strategy and military approaches and ideas. So thank you very much. I'm not sure it's, it makes it any simpler. I'm <laughs> it just highlights the complexity, perhaps. But actually having a way of navigating that complexity is always useful. The important thing that we haven't really addressed yet is how do militaries make strategy happen? Because that's surely just as complex and just as difficult as trying to understand what strategy is in the first place. I think it's it's even harder, to be honest, because in many respects, the intellectual exercise of going through and identify what am I trying to achieve? How am I going to do it? And how do I align my resources to delivering that? is is tough but it's it's achievable because it's 
it's a theoretical activity. Making it happen is the practical bit, and that's where the enemy's votes really comes in. Uh, David Petraeus identifies, I suppose, four tasks of a strategic leader. And overall, he says, as a strategic leader, how do you make this happen? It's about telling a story. Um, so the first of his four tasks is you've got to get the big ideas right. And in the context of Iraq, particularly, that the big idea was one to acknowledge it as a counterinsurgency where you're not going to be able to kill the adversary in the on the industrial scale you need. You need to win the hearts and minds of the population over to you. And so that changes how you you think about delivering the military effect. It's no longer about industrial scale slaughter of your adversary. It's about how do you make things better for the population so that they reject the people who are opposing you. So getting the big ideas right is is critical. And, and he argues that's where you absolutely need the diversity of views. Because if you only get people who agree with you, then you end up with strategy potentially like President Putin in Ukraine, who thinks invading Ukraine is a good idea because he's not He's not getting that challenge. Are you sure you really want to invade the second largest country in Europe with 40 million people who don't want you to be there and think you're going to get away with it in the coup domain within a few days? Um, so having got the big ideas right, you need to communicate them effectively so people understand. And again, back to your point, Harry, about mission command, it's not just the person immediately below you in the chain. It's about making sure your organization understands the totality of this. And, and and David Petraeus is famous for when he's out there as the commanding general, when he goes out to forward operating bases, he's checking with the soldiers that they've read FM 324, Field Manual 324, the counterinsurgency manual, so they understand what it is they're trying to achieve. And of course, General Stanley McChrystal does the same when he talks about courageous restraint in Afghanistan, which is we're going to take a little bit of risk by not exporting violence to the population in order to protect ourselves, because our job is to protect the population. But you need to have even private soldiers at the lowest level of your organization, at the tactical level of your organization, understanding that. Then you've got to oversee implementation. So you need to have the mechanisms by which you get feedback from what's actually happening. So the, the commanders' orders groups, the, the feedback sessions. And, and when I was in Afghanistan, the amount of time invested in coordination and understanding how the plan is actually manifesting itself on the ground is critical. And it's critical because the fourth of the tasks is working out how your big ideas need to be refined. Because as they say, no plan survives contact with the enemy. So you need to have that feedback mechanism that allows you to respond to events on the ground, adapt the strategy, adapt the ends potentially. And we saw that in, in Afghanistan, where we go in initially with the idea of creating Switzerland in Southeast Asia. You know, this idea of a, a country that's at peace with itself and at peace with its neighbors, it's prosperous uh, and everything is marvelous. To by the time we left, the end state was it's no longer going to be a threat to, to the countries that were much further away. So you need to refine your ideas. And I ought to say I'm not suggesting by any means that the strategy in Afghanistan was successful. I think the problem with Afghanistan was there were multiple strategies in play and people didn't make choices. And that is the big challenge with government and, and militaries, which is Choices are difficult because if it goes wrong, somebody carries political accountability. And so 
there's a temptation to try to avoid making choices. But if you can't make choices, you don't have a strategy, or certainly you don't have a strategy that's going to be successful. There's something really important in there, because people often assume, I think, that when you change your strategy or when you reduce your set of objectives, you've somehow failed. But that's almost inevitable in the continuous process of making strategy, right? You have to adapt and your strategy has to respond to your new reality. It has to adapt, absolutely. Uh, but there are arguments that say and the initial strategy may well have failed if you haven't achieved your original objective, but that doesn't mean the whole thing is a disaster um, or doesn't necessarily mean that if you can still come out of it with an acceptable outcome. But there are times, of course, where strategy clearly does fail. And then it's it's problematic if you pretend that isn't true, because then you don't have that sense of self-reflection. Then you fail Sun Tzu's dictum of know yourself and know your adversary, and you'll be successful in a thousand battles. So I, I would always caution against taking too optimistic a view. And the classic example, of course, is uh, is in Vietnam where I mean, the American military say, we never lost a, a battle. We were let down by the politicians. But quite frankly, if the end state of a war is political, if you don't achieve your end state politically, then you haven't been successful. There was no point putting people there. And that, that other great example, I think it's General Giap, but, but it may be another a senior Vietnamese general where the American general says to him, we beat you in every battle. And he says, you're absolutely right, but that's irrelevant. Indeed. You don't always have to win the battle to win the war. So what exactly would constitute a failure of strategy? I think it's the inability to achieve your outcomes, which is possibly because you were overly ambitious and hadn't done the analysis, and therefore your imbalance between purpose and action, as Gray would put it, or your imbalance between ends, ways, and means. Um, but the fact that the original strategy doesn't work isn't a strategic failure, I think, as long as the end state is one that you get to where you are comfortable with the with the outcome. It will be interesting to see how Russia interprets what is happening in Ukraine, because it clearly hasn't achieved its aims thus far. It looks unlikely it will achieve its aim, but in war, all things are, are possible. But I think on balance, it's unlikely to have achieved its aims. Certainly, the, the sense is the, the momentum is with Ukraine. Whether Ukraine overachieves its original ambition, which might have been just to survive, it may now be thinking much more expansively to remove Russia even from the pre-2014 period, which for Russia would be, a think, I think, a strategic failure because they are worse off having invested blood and treasure in Ukraine than they were in the early part of of 2022, in January of 2022, before they, they invaded. It's perhaps not very surprising that your mind went straight to Putin and Russian strategy in Ukraine when I asked what makes for a bad strategy. It only goes for me to say thank you so much for coming on the show today, Paul. This has been a tremendously helpful introduction to strategy, and you've given us some wonderful insights into what makes strategy work, the types of strategy that organisations can use, as well as the difficulties in creating and implementing strategy. So thank you for this excellent discussion. Thank you, Harry. It's a real pleasure. And if I could just make a plug for one, maybe one other book that people might be interested in, it's, uh, it's Richard Rumelt's Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, which is a, a very good read, I think. Um, it's primarily in the business space, 
but again, if you're thinking about strategy more generally, it's, it's really is an excellent book. Excellent. Thanks again, Paul. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Andrew. Right, that's it for Series 2 of Air Power and International Security. And what a way to end the series. There were some incredibly helpful and useful lessons about strategy there. We'll be back in the autumn with some more new episodes, but until then, it's goodbye from me.